sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best? Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Carla was the prom queen. Really? Yeah. Haha. <laughs> Good old classic scene from Sean Connery. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. The Rock 1996 with Nicolas Cage, a Michael Bay film. Just thought I'd throw that in there since today I'm going to be talking Sean Connery films, uh, or at least the Bond installments. All right, on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage, episode 87, where I'm going to be doing a couple subjective uh, top worst best of lists uh, creepy films overrated guitarist best classic rock songs i'm gonna be talking goldfinger thunderblade diamonds are forever uh sega cd turbo cd pc engine cd uh 25 worst horror movies of all time yeah um i got a little a uh, little bit to uh convey here and uh what i've been playing and what i beat uh, i had a good time with uh beyond good and evil uh, I finally beat it. Um, it. It was really cool. The last boss really wasn't that challenging, but the controls were fucking back. They were backwards, people. Like the uh, little alien creature in the bottom of this great crypt that's taking you know control of the humans and using them to their uh, disposal. Uh, it gives this like greenish hueish glow. And left is right, right is left, up is down, down is up, and so forth. And you have to fight like that <clears throat> and avoid the eyes attacks. It's like this scorpion looking eye thing and you know what talks to you like kind of like how evil dead it's like join us type deal like you know because obviously it's trying to take over my body so therefore you know i can't beat it and it can continue to harvest humans kind of thing it's almost like a predecessor to uh like the matrix the way that it felt but uh yeah it was it was a really cool game uh, i'm glad that there was a remake hopefully the movie comes out or tv series or whatever hopefully they do a decent job and then uh, hopefully uh, a sequel also comes out soon. I had a lot of fun with it. I, I thought it was great. Immediately after that, I decided to pop in Sly Cooper. And uh, it's fucking fantastic. The uh, artwork reminds me of the cell shading from like Wind Waker on GameCube. Sly Cooper is a series of platform stealth video games on PS2, PS3, as well as PS Vita. PlayStation 3 uh, had one and it wasn't uh, done by a Sucker Punch. I, I don't, I want to say it's canon compared to the original trilogy that's on PS2, but it's not... It's like a different uh, publisher and different designer. It's a little different, if I'm not mistaken. I have that version as well, um, but I'm playing the first one on PS2 and having a lot of fun with it. I think I'm about maybe 40, 50% through. Uh, it's it's great. <clears throat> it's Sucker Punch, uh, the same guys who worked on the Infamous series that is on PS3. I started that one as well. Infamous is a lot of fun. Uh, it reminds me, uh, well, I think it was supposed to originally be a Spider-Man game, if I'm not mistaken, but you can kind of tell uh, the way that it plays and the way that it it's controlled. But uh yeah, Slay Cooper is a lot of fun. Uh, the anthropomorphic uh, raccoon and master thief, along with his two partners in crime, Bentley, the turtle, a.k.a. Franklin from Nick Jr. is what I fucking think of him as, and Murray, the hippopotamus, uh, basically the purple hippopotamus version of Grimace, I guess, if you will, from McDonald's, <laughs> all of whom are pursued by Sly's love interest, Inspector Carmelita Fox. Carmelita Fox uh, tries to kill freaking Sly Cooper every chance she gets to because she's a uh, police officer and she keeps trying to take him, take him out, and Sly is obviously a, a thief. But, uh, I mean, there's the platforming's really done really well. X is to jump. You can double jump. Uh, squares to attack. Triangles to use, I guess, your quote-unquote, like, special skills, I guess, if you will. Um, you can get dive. You get roll. You could get <clears throat> um, other... Um, I think, yeah, there's other stuff. I just... I haven't unlocked it yet. Because you have to find these, like, message bottles. And then you go to a, a, a loot, I guess, uh, type of, you know, like... <laughs> 
sort of safe, I guess, if you will. And once you collect all these particular message bottles per level, you can go to the safe and you can open it up and you get like an extra attack or it'll tell you uh, what to do for the next um, mission. It's kind of like a little extra in-game like DLC, I guess, if you will. I don't know how else to really view it. Um, Bentley is more or less your professor, I guess, if you will. He tells you what to do. Uh, and then Murray, he has his own particular stages too. Typically, you're protecting him, like shooting people around him so he can get to the end of the stage. You collect keys in order to open up the boss stage and there's boss battles. Uh, it's it's like a stealth version of Crash Bandicoot per se. Um, but I, I really enjoy these games. It's, it's a lot of fun thus far. So uh, there you have it. <clears throat> Beat Beyond Good and Evil. I'm playing Sly Cooper currently. I'm not really playing anything else. I've just been infatuated with this game. I hope to play it here as soon as I'm done talking to you guys. Uh, I have like four different subjective lists that I'm going to be going over and three Bond films and a Sega CD, TurboGrafx CD, PC Engine CD, same thing. One's Japan, one's US. But uh, there you have it. Episode 87. Let's go. Well, you guys know me <clears throat> as of late as far as... Uh, as soon as I log on, MSN decides to throw at me uh, 15 scary movies that are creepy with a capital C. Let's see what they have to uh, say. And I believe they start in... So it goes in ascending order. I believe it's 15 to 1. Oh, descending. Whatever. However you want to look at it. Uh, the Visit is number uh, t 2, I guess, or 1, or whatever you want to call it. 15, I guess we'll say. M. Night Shyamalan's uh, rarity film. Uh, it, it was an, a clever idea with supernatural evil... Uh, meaning deterioration of mental health in the elderly, you know, and then they push, like, the kids inside the oven and meets, like, Hansel and Gretel it. It was whatever. I mean, maybe I need to rewatch it, but I really have no desire to, to be honest with you, so whatever. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Case 39, that one gets a pass. I don't think I've ever heard of that one or seen that one, so maybe I'm behind as far as creepy films go. Paranormal Activity, yes, absolutely. The original trilogy, as I've discussed before, yes, absolutely. That one was definitely creepy. Uh, insidious or insidious however you want to so let me see what their subjective list was so they have the visit i'm going to put so i'm going to do my own little so paranormal activity of course and i said insidious uh let me see what else we got okay that way i have them it might be my own little list of six compared to their list i don't know we'll see what happens uh i agree with insidious that deserves to be on your hereditary that also happens to come on here a lot as well and I would agree. I, I really enjoyed this uh, particular film, but, you know, from the, what is it, Ari Aster. Yeah, that's his name. Same guy who did a Midsummer, which I thought was terrible. Uh, I think Wicker Man is a better adaptation of that kind of tale. But uh, Hereditary will go on this list of creepy, absolutely sure. Uh, it, I don't even, you know what? How about... How about I put the It from 1990? Because fuck that. I'm so, so, so tired of hearing about the new one all the goddamn time. Damn it, I'm tired of it. Uh, Us? I thought Us was fucking trash, so I'm not even going to say that that was creepy. That was just dumb. Uh, Frailty? That one gets a pass. Never heard of it. The Others? Yeah, I loved this when it came out. Can't believe it came out 22 years ago. The Others. That one creeped me out, man. 2001. Uh, Nicole Kidman, it bolsters a sinister atmosphere in a secluded Victorian estate. No shortage of creepy children and the mysterious shenanigans. They do like a seance and the woman, you know, her eyes, she's blind. It, it's creepy. Like it has that ambiance of like early millennium spine chilling imagery and genuine horror and scares. Yeah, the others definitely deserves to be on it. This particular list. Uh, session nine. Uh, I want to say I've seen it. 
uh, clearly doesn't have any particular memory in the memory banks of the old uh, the old Marshall here. I mean, because I I vaguely remember it, but I will put it on this list for now. It's probably going to go pretty low because I don't remember it. Maybe I need to rewatch it. I don't know. What do we got here? Wicker Man. Not the remake. I'm going to do Wicker Man 70s. How about that? Uh, so they have the 2006 one here with uh, Nick Cage. I like Nick Cage in his own way or, you know, Nicholas Coppola, however you want to pronounce his actual name. Uh, I'm going to do Wicker Man with Christopher Lee. Chris Lee was probably 70-something, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes 2006. I liked The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, it was... I don't know if it's really... Yeah, it, it is creepy in its own regard. It's It's like a... Twisted tale of like, you know, Texas Chainsaw type shit. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed The Hills Have Eyes. Even the old ones are cool too. All right, what else we got here? Uh, the Orphan. Uh, it was a clever tale. Um, I I think it was creepy when it came out, but uh, do I still think it's creepy? Hell no. That came out 14 years ago, but I will put it on this little list that I got going on here, and I will see if I can number these things, and I will get back to you, and I'll let you know what I think. What else we got here? The Perfect Host. I never saw that one. I've seen Host 2020, and I like that one. So I am going to give that one a pass. Rosemary's Baby. Love that fucking film. I like that more than The Exorcist, personally. Love Rosemary's Baby. I thought it was so good. Roman Polanski. Oh, it's so good. Mia Farrow. Oh, okay. What do I got here? I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know how I managed to get like a perfect. Uh, okay, so what do we got here? Ah, boy, I'm going to put, we'll put that one there because I remember, I don't remember that one. We'll do this. We'll do, it's a classic. It probably deserves to be higher, but, huh. Yeah, that one creeped me out as a kid, so that one's also going to go higher. Okay, Wicker Mint. Okay, we'll put that at eight. Put that at seven. Creep me out as a kid for sure, that one. That one was a big staple of mine for sure. We'll go there. And then we'll go there. Ooh, this is a tough contender. The top one and then the bottom, okay. Uh, yeah, I'd probably give it to that one and then... Okay, here's my little list of 10 out of their 15 that they decided to present as far as creepy. 10 and putting it at session 9 be only because I don't remember it. 9, Orphan, because same thing. It also deserves to be low on this list because it was creepy then. Now I would just see it borderline as like a mentally unstable slasher, I guess, if you will, is how I would kind of view it. 8, Wicker Man, the Christopher Lee version, not their 2006 one. Because it, it was an original kind of tale at that time and it deserves to be, you know, at least higher than the other two aforementioned. Hills Have Eyes, 2006, I really like that. It was like wrong turn meets like Texas Chainsaw kind of type shit. It was really cool. I enjoyed that. Uh, six, the others, because it just, I think what really stands out is I remember the whole seance, the people don't realize that they're dead and they have this like veil over them. And yeah, it was, I still get that like just imagery of that. And I'm like, yeah, it's definitely creepy. It 1990 with Tim Curry, because I remember being an early teenager slash like uh, probably 11 or 12, like in sixth grade. And I remember going to a sleepover. And seeing that film, and man, it creeped the fuck out of me as a kid, especially as a kid. Not now, but uh, I guess for nostalgia's sake, uh, sure, it creeped me out. For Hereditary, that came out what, maybe a couple years ago, maybe 2018 or something. Yeah, it creeped me out when it came out. Uh, knowing what I know now, uh, no, not so much, because I mean, you can break it down, and then after he falls out of the window and lands in the bushes on his face, I think the film should have ended there instead of him going up into the 
uh, like what little clubhouse type thing and assuming that you know demon thing or whatever the fuck it was uh, insidious the first one up until i feel like you see darth maul as the freaking you know everybody says that including myself of course being a star wars fan until you see the actual demon it, it had such a good build-up and then it was kind of just eh. rosemary's baby 1968 absolutely deserves to be number two i was very debating very much so debating to put it at number one slot but uh Number two, Rosemary's Baby. It just—it's such a good, profound story, especially from the '60s, like going into the '70s. Like it just sets such a creepy tone. You know, the whole—you see, like the devil's hands, like you know, obviously touching her and like molesting her, and obviously you know, giving birth to the son of you know Satan. And so it's crazy, especially for that time. Paranormal Activity just—that's number one. That just changed the game forever, especially when it came out. I, I don't think I've seen one, two, and three like since they came out, or maybe like you know, with a buddy or something at their house and. They're still creepy, in my opinion, at least the first three. And I, I have no desire to really go back to them because they're that creepy to me. But, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure I could probably watch it. I say that now. I'm sure if it were on, I probably wouldn't watch it. If I Well, it's late now. <laughs> I'm not watching it at night, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, if I was watching it with somebody who's like, oh, I've never seen these, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll watch it with you. That way I can maybe lighten up the mood. That way you don't get creeped out. But there you have it. There's uh, my list of 10. Their list of 15 was whatever. My list of 10 is better, I think, in my opinion. All right, moving on. Well, here's another uh, subjective list that I stumbled upon by accident once again on uh, Microsoft. And uh, it's telling me <laughs> top 10 overrated guitar players and I already have a feeling I'm not going to like this list and I might maybe for the sake of all this, I will have to move them around per se. Uh, their number 10 is a uh, Tom Morello, uh, fucking no rage against machine and audio slave. Are you kidding me? Like, I, no, that's going to have to. Okay. So that's their number 10. You know, he came around in 1992, according to what they're telling me, as a suburban cosplay socialist teenager, an astute political mind, speaking frequently and intelligently about various injustices in the world. Uh, his shtick has not changed in 30 years as far as what he plays. And that's fine, because it works for him. Like, so, fuck off. Like, who's reviewing this? Is this, uh, is this <laughs> Roger Ebert reviewing this? Like, what's going on here? All right, so... Tom Morello is number 10. Let's see what their number nine is. John Mayer. Okay. I can see him being on this list. Uh, as in they think that he's overrated. Uh, I will have to move things around for sure. So let me see what else we got going on here. Jerry Garcia. Yeah. I am not really a deadhead fan. I, I like classic rock. They have a really, really iconic logo. I just, I am not a grateful dead fan. I just, I, I can't, I just, I don't see the appeal to it personally. Keith Richards is number seven. I don't think he's uh, under or excuse me, overrated at all. Personally, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess as far as the bad boy Beatles, I mean, he's not bad, but I mean, maybe not overrated. He's just not, I think, in my mind, overtly, incredibly talented, like how George Harrison was per se, as far as, uh, counterparts go, or even like David Gilmore from uh, Pink Floyd. But, uh, uh, yeah, Keith Richards, he's not bad. I don't think he's, uh, overrated though. Carlos Santana, I find him incredibly overrated. So personally, nothing against like, you know, your views and so forth. I'm just, I'm not a Santana fan. I mean, and that's great that he's, uh, has that Latin influence psychedelic rock, I just, I would rather, if I wanted to listen to Latin music, I'll just listen to Latin music versus, just, I don't know, I can't, 
I can't get into his licks. He's incredibly talented. I just I, I am not a fan personally. Slash very much so overrated. I can't stand GNR. Okay, I'm glad that they are on this list. So now I gotta think of like I gotta think backwards, like who are my least favorite to favorite, basically. That's how I wanna kind of view this. Steve Ray Vaughn, oh he's great. You think he's over you think he's overrated MSN? I think he's fucking fantastic. I feel like he picked up the torch where uh, Jimi Hendrix left off personally. So, I mean, with the whole Roadhouse kind of blues, you know, a little Doors reference there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, come on, man. Fucking Roadhouse, dude. Patrick Swayze, man. I know it wasn't Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was a blind gentleman. But come on, man. He died in a helicopter crash at 35, uh, sadly, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. But come on, man. What, what else we got here going? Jimmy Page. I don't, eh, I could see why people probably think he's overrated, but he's also incredibly talented, so I don't think he's overrated. What else we got here? Two is Eric Clapton. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like Eric Clapton, I do, but I can see where people are coming from. What's number one here? Revoked Goats. Uh, it looks like it's Keith Richards again. Yeah, it's definitely, so, I, I, I guess, okay, what do we have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So what the fuck? They they showed Keith Richards again, and they didn't choose another name. So how about okay? Let me think of another guitarist. How about uh? I'm not gonna do David Gilmore because I love the beat. Uh, let's think of another like classic rock artist here. I'm not gonna do Jimmy because I like him too much. Uh, how about okay? We'll we'll go Angus Young. Sure, Ang or uh, yeah, Angus Young, ACDC. Okay, so now I gotta do basically my least favorite to favorite personally. Uh, or no, because they were saying they were saying who they think is the most overrated. So okay, I, I have to go who I think is least. Okay, fuck. Uh, yeah, I'll go like. Oh no, I'll go like that. No, because I want to put the guys that I like at the bottom. Is how I want to view this essentially. So. Fuck, I fucked up, so... Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> am I, <laughs> am I miss? Oh no, okay. I was like, am I missing numbers here? Like, what's going on here? Uh, I will go eight and then nine. Okay, all right. So, starting from the bottom, who I think is the uh, least uh, overrated, I guess, guitarist. I will go with number ten, uh, Tom Morello. Number nine, Angus Young. I guess I have a soft spot for uh, ACDC. Granted, yeah, a lot of their songs sound the same, but they do it right, man. I don't really like how it's pronounced in uh, Australia, apparently. I know it's from there, their band, you know, Aka Daka. I just, just that sound, it just, I feel like in the States, it just, it's like a, I don't know, earworm. It just hurts, it hurts my mind hearing them call it Aka Daka. Or go to Mackey's and, you know, find yourself a Sheila or whatever. Mackey's is McDonald's and Sheila being... Whatever. Everybody has their own linguistics. It's just... I mean, you don't hear me calling, like, the Doors. The Dories or, like, you know... Or, uh, I don't know, Dead Kennedys. The Deckies. Like, I would never do that. Like, 
whatever Aussies, you can call them Akadaka. I don't really like it. Sorry, just being honest. Teach their own. Keith Richards, number eight, as far as uh, least overrated, in my opinion. Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, Jimmy Page, number six. Eric Clapton, number five. Number four, John Mayer. Number three, Jerry Garcia, whatever, go. Carlos Santana, number two, and Slash being number one, the most overrated guitarist. There you have it. There's my other list as far as uh, what they felt was subjective. I made my own subjective list with what was given to me. Well, I found another subjective list. 27 best classic rock songs. Let's see what they have to say. And you guys know me all too well now. I will revise what they have and I will make my own list. Top, you know, 27 apparently. I don't know why they chose 27. Maybe the whole uh, secret behind uh, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and uh, Kurt Cobain, you know, killing themselves uh, is my guess. Uh, they start... No, let's, let's see. Let me go backwards here. I'm going to go... I'm going to work my way backwards because I don't know why they start. I want to, I want the tension to build. I don't want to look at the answer right away. So, okay. Number 27, welcome to the jungle. Fuck off. I'm not even going to put this. I'm not even going to put it on this list. I am not a Guns N' Roses fan. Just straight up. I'm just not. So moving on. Tutti Frutti, Little Richard. I can see the impact and the importance of that. It's been everywhere. So I will put it. I'll put it on here and we'll see what I get as far as my own little list going on. So Little Richard. Tutti Frutti, uh, woo, you know, I mean, come on, he worked together with Jimi Hendrix, you know, without him, Jimi Hendrix probably wouldn't, well, he definitely got his start with Jimi Hendrix, and he was, like, upstaged and so forth by Jimi Hendrix, and he got mad about it, I mean, Little Richard's uh, incredibly important in the uh, rock scene, very much so, especially the early days. Uh, Johnny B. Good, Chuck Berry, thank you, I was hoping in the same vein that that would be on here as well. That's probably one of his biggest hits, but, I mean, I like his weird, you know, obscure rarities b-sides type stuff but i really enjoy chuck berry he definitely set the tone for the guitar a uh, little richard being on piano of course love chuck berry dream on aerosmith of course aerosmith is like what gnr was trying to do like they picked up i feel like the torch i guess if you will granted aerosmith still plays and it's still freaking fantastic they have their own like little residency in uh, las vegas yeah aerosmith deserves to be on this list as far as uh uh, greatest classic rock songs go of course it was a uh, dream on so what else we got here we are the champions queen of course i mean they could have chose basically any fucking song by queen really i mean freddie mercury brian may i mean come on man so queen of course they didn't need to be on this list uh and we'll see what i can get to your song elton john elton john's always great too i you know you can't go wrong with him on the piano you know goodbye yellow brick road i mean just don't shoot me on the piano player. I have it on vinyl. I love it. I love Elton John. It's great. Even the film was great. Rocket Man. Not the Rocket Man that I already reviewed, but his Rocket Man. California Girls. Uh, Beach Boys are good. They are. I don't think it's classic rock. It's its own kind of like doo surf rock. I, I, I'll put it as a possible contender. I'll put it off to the side. California Girls, Beach Boys. I don't know if it deserves to be on a great classic rock list personally, but... You know, I'll see what I get to. Okay, Hotel California, of course. It's probably one of their other biggest songs. You know, the Eagles. Eagles are, I fucking hate the Eagles, man. <laughs> Big Lebowski. I love Big Lebowski, uh, but I do enjoy the Eagles too. I think I was always more of a CCR fan. Then I was probably Eagles and then uh, Leonard as far as top three. Leonard's okay. I just don't really adventure too much around with it rather than love John Fogarty, CCR, and I do enjoy the Eagles as well. 
Uh, let's see what else we got here on their uh, little subjective list. Honky Tonk Woman, of course. Yeah, Rolling Stones are great. I mean, they could have chose any amount of songs by uh, Rolling Stones, of course. Uh, let me see what else we got here. Go on this list. Like a Rolling Stone. Bob Dylan, yeah. He's... Well, because he did have his band, too, and I have a lot of his records. Um, like a Rolling Stone, that's pro. Yeah, I would consider him more folk rock personally, but I will put it, I'll put it in there depending on how many I have. Um, as far as a uh, round number, to do some sort of subjective list. Let me see what else we got going on here. Purple Rain Prince, Prince is like, he made like classic rock pop, and same thing. I'll put it off to the side as a possible contender. It's probably not my favorite song by him. I mean, I definitely enjoy Prince, though. I mean, he's very talented on guitar. Uh, I just, I don't think it's classic rock, personally. Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley in the comments, of course. We're going to rock. Gonna rock. Very, very early rock, but it's still definitely considered rock. Absolutely. Because I'm looking at it literally subjectively to where it's just rock-related. Um, so let me see. Okay, Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley in the comments. Okay. Surprised they didn't put like Buddy Holly on. Well, they might. I don't know. Let me see what else we got. Come on. She loves you, the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. That was no pun intended. She loves you. Yeah. <laughs> so she loves you, Beatles, of course. I mean, same thing. They could have chose any number of catalog songs from them and it would have been fine. Uh, My Sweet Lord, George Harrison. That gets a pass only because I just said the Beatles. I don't think they should do their solo work on here. So I'm going to, I'm not even going to add that one to the list. Rhiannon, of course, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, or Fleetwood Mac's great. Fleet, oh, there. So, I st personally, I still feel like Fleetwood Mac is underrated. I really do. Mick, I mean, Mick Fleetwood, freaking. God, man, it's just, uh, it's so good. Stevie Nicks, come on, man. So good. Fleetwood Mac will definitely be on this list. Okay. The House of the Rising Sun, the animals. Ah, uh, okay. Another rule to my uh, rule here. Um, I feel like. They should have more songs within their catalog in order to be considered best classic rock songs because most people only remember the animals for really that song. I will put it off to the side. It, it is a good song. It's classic. It's very like, it's almost kind of creepy. Like any guy Vida like meets like a surf music meets like a cocktail music. It's, there's some, there's a magic involved with that one. There's something else involved with that song. It's really cool. It's very simplistic. It's very to the point. It sounds great. I used to jam out with it with my buddy. Like, he would play it on guitar, and I'd play the drums. Just classic. Money or Nothing, Dire Straits. Uh, I'm only going to give that one a pass because I don't think I listen to him enough. I've heard the name countless times. I'm sure if I heard this song, I'd be like, oh, my God, I know this song. And I don't really feel like pulling it up, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I got other things I want to talk about, and I kind of want to get through this list here. Maggie May, yeah, he does have other good songs, too. Yeah, I I, I like Rod Stewart. I do. Wake up. I think I'm going to say to you, it's late September, and you really should be back at school. Yeah, Rod Stewart's, he's pretty soft. I'm not even... <sighs> I'm not even going to put The Clash on here. Why is The Clash under classic rock, man? It's not. And it's like, it's like proto-punk. It's not, I don't know. I am just, 
I am not a Clash fan. I get consider it punk blasphemy. I love punk rock. I just don't like the Clash. I don't. I love rock and roll, Joan Jett. That's an anthem. She does have other songs. I'm also going to give that one kind of a pass. I mean, I liked the film that I watched. Thank you, Austin James, for that. Uh, sending me the DVD about her. Um, that was really cool. Uh, I love, of course. I mean, yeah, it's it's almost like arena rock, that song. I mean, she did do punk rock stuff, too. I don't know if I would really consider her classic rock, though. It's its own kind of thing. I'll put that off to the side. Uh, Rockin' in the Free World. Uh, hell yeah, I did just see Neil Young, too, which was awesome. And he did play that song. He played it solo, acoustically. He played Ohio. For dead in Ohio. Tin soldiers in... Yeah, man. Uh, he What else did he play? Ha uh, Harvest Moon. And... Uh, like a hurricane. Oh, God. I love Neil Young. I really do. I'm so very fortunate that I got to go see him. It's rocking in the free world, of course. Red, white, and blue. Keep on rocking in the free world. I can't sing like Neil Young. He has a great, great high-pitched kind of voice. And, you know, when he talks and by himself, he kind of sounds like, I don't know, like Jimmy Stewart meets, like, Bill Clinton, kind of. He's like, hey, everybody, I'm happy to be here. I'm going to... I think I'm going to play a song now. I mean, he's old. Like, give him a break, you know, right? And he's 80 years old, but that's just how I picture it. That's exactly how he sounds. He's just like, all right, all right, well, uh, I guess I'm just going to go over on this piano now and I'll play something for you. It's exactly how he sounds, and it was really cool to see him. I mean, it was a solo project. He did mostly rarities, but he did play uh, some hits, though, too, which was cool. You know, well worth the $100 or whatever, a little over $100 that I paid. So, all right, what do we got here? Under Pressure, David Bowie, and Queen. How about, okay, I already have Queen on here. How about if I'll, I'll just put David Bowie, any fucking, um, uh, we'll, do, we'll do Space Oddity. How about if I'll just, I'll change it up. Because I mean, he changed the game, man. He and Queen, they like set the like melodical harmony tone, just symphony-based kind of like classic rock. It's its own thing. Like it's not, like nobody else sounded like him. He was great. Labyrinth was great. I mean, come on, dude. David Bowie's fantastic. Yeah, I just wrote David. I, I meant to write David Bowie in his knife, right? Okay, all right, moving on. What do we got here? Midnight Rambler, the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones are already on here. They get a pass again. I can't put two of the same fucking artists on here. It's not fair. Of course Led Zeppelin's on here, and of course they they chose uh, Stairway to Heaven. I'm not surprised. I mean, that's the forbidden song. Don't play that in Wayne's World, whatever you do, <laughs> or any guitar uh, center. <laughs> I, th I think it's still banned if you do, actually. It's pretty funny. I've seen people do it. Freebird, Leonard Skinner, uh, yeah, Leonard's very iconic. They, they are. They they definitely deserve to be on this list. It's just not necessarily my thing compared. To, I mean, they're very very talented musicians. Lyrically, it's great. It's just I don't know. I I just like CCR and Eagles more personally. All right, what do we got here? Purple Jimi Hendrix, of course. Jimi needs to be on this list. Uh, of course. And now I have to rate. Oh, I got. I'm about to have to rate. Uh. Yeah, okay, so I got, what do I have? I got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Sure, I'll do tops. Yeah. So Freebird, it was a... Uh... Fuck, okay, so I have... Okay, how about, okay, so I have 16, and I got what? So 17, if I add Bob Dylan. 18, if I add Beach Boys. And 19, if I add, okay. 
and I'll probably leave uh, so 16 and then I got 17 17 18 19 and I'll just throw in I'll just throw in a freaking uh, who song how about uh, Bob O'Reilly the who you know everybody knows that one everyone's always like why is it called Bob O'Reilly a teenage wasteland right okay so I'm gonna add that one in there all right now I gotta go Greatest classic rock song of all time. All right, I'm going to start from... I'm going to go Tutti Frutti is number 20. Chuck Berry is 19. Very, very important. I had to put Chuck Berry over uh, Little Richard, of course. Uh, I'm going to do your... I mean, it's nothing against the artist. Maybe it's against their choice of song. Uh, Elton John's, I'm going to go 18. I'm just not... That, that song's okay. I mean, Rock Around the Clock is classic. I'd rather listen to that over that particular Elton John song. That's just me, personally. She loves you, yeah. I, once again, I don't mean to make that pun, the Beatles, but uh, <laughs> uh, Maggie May, yeah, that's a good one. That can go at number fifteen for uh, Rod Stewart, of course. Uh, I would probably put fourteen Freebird. Um. 13, I'll go Beach Boys, sure. Like Rolling Stone. I, I, I just, I personally, I just, I love Bob Dylan. I do. Um, I'm not going to put Joan Jett on here. I think I have to put House of the Rising Sun on here, too. So I'll put that at number 11. There's something magical about that fucking song. All right. Uh, it's getting borderline down to the nitty gritty. Fuck. All right, we'll go David Bowie, Space Odyssey, number 10. Number nine is Hotel. It is a classic song, but it's probably like one of my least favorite Eagle songs. So, I mean, Dream On's great. I mean, I can listen to that like forever pretty much. You know I mean, so I'm going to go that as number eight only because these other songs are just so, so like just important to me and meaningful. Nothing against uh, Aerosmith. I mean, they're fucking fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go six with that. So I got what, five. Four, three, so six, five. Well, apparently I can count, right? I fucked up <laughs> my numbers here. So five, five is going to be Jimi Hendrix. And then four, no, I'll go, I'll switch it. Four will be Rolling Stones, Honky Tonk. And then, no, five will be that. And then four will be a Purple Haze. I will put Purple Haze over a... Uh, Rolling Stones, uh, absolutely any day. So, minus four. So maybe I'll go, we'll go, oh, I guess, what, 16 then, I guess? I meant to put 20. I, apparently, I can't count. Well, you know, anyway, here we go. So I'll start at number 16, being Tootie Fruity, Little Richard, Johnny B. Goods, number, uh, so 16, so that's 15. Oh, boy. Your song, Elton John, is 14. Uh, I don't know where my fucking 17 was. Oh, 17 is Rock Around the Clock, so that would be number 13, since I can't count, apparently. 16 is She Loves You, yeah, 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 Beatles. I'm going to go that as number 12. Where's number fucking 15? Yeah, I skipped. Okay, number there's number 15. Because Maggie May is going to be number 11. Uh, Leonard Skinner's Freebird is going to be number 10. California Girls will be number nine. Beach Boys. Right, like a Rolling Stone will be number eight. Uh, Bob Dylan. 
Number seven, House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. Number six, uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity. Number five is Hotel California. Aerosmith is Dream On. Number four, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Number three, David Bowie's Space Odyssey. Number two, and then Jimi Hendrix's uh, Purple Haze, I guess, would be number one then as far as uh, classic art. Oh, I, I didn't put a Bob O'Reilly on here. That should be number probably th fuck. Anyway, I can't count. But anyway, they had a good idea as far as classic rock artists. I mean, I don't know. Why'd they choose number 27? Why couldn't they make it an even even number, five or zero? Then again, five is a fucking odd number. You get the idea. All right. I didn't mean to take so long on this uh, here. uh <laughs> Oh, fucking best classic rock songs. But there you have it. There's my subjective, out-of-order, somewhat list. I mean, if you paid attention, cool. If not, well, sorry. All right, moving on. All right. <clears throat> Since I was kind of on a Bond kick, I also have these other Bond uh, VHSs, and I decided to watch uh, Sean Connery's Goldfinger, 1964, PG, Hour 50, it's so cool. These these old Bond films have just such a charm to them. It has a 7.7 out of 197,000. It's an action-adventure thriller. Of course, Ian Fleming's Bond, uh, while investigating a gold magnate's smuggling, James Bond uncovers a plot to contaminate the Fort Knox Gold Reserve. Uh, this is where Oddjob comes in, and it has that famous line, you know, uh, do you expect me to talk, Goldfinger? And, you know, Goldfinger looks at him. He's like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die because he's on the table with the laser. Yeah, and, uh, you know, odd job being the little, uh, I guess, like, incredibly impenetrable Asian man who has, like, uh, basically like a giant metal plate on his uh, top hat and throws it. You know, obviously, Austin Powers essentially mimics that and so forth. And, yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like Austin Powers is very much, like, uh, in, like, Flint meets you know, the Bond films. It's like a mixture of the two, and uh, it's it's great. But uh, obviously, Goldfinger, yeah, I having never seen it, it's awesome. I'm actually in the middle of watching a Thunderball right now, and I will be talking about that next. Directed by Guy Hamilton. Let's see what else this uh, gentleman did. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever, another uh, James Bond, Live and Let Die, another James Bond, and The Man with the Golden Gun, another James Bond, 74, 71, 73. Okay. I believe I have Diamonds Are Forever. I think I, th I think I might actually have all of those other ones that I intend to watch, and I will cover those as well. But as of right now, I just want to do uh, coverage of the uh, Sean Connery-based uh, films as far as 007 is concerned. Written by Richard Maybaum, Paul Dent, and Ian Fleming, of course, being the author of James Bond, starring Sean Connery. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I'm having a sparkling ice uh, water, and, of course, carbonation makes me burp. <laughs> Sean Connery, Gert Frobe. Uh, and Honor Blackman is the guy's uh, name, I believe. Uh, I don't. Uh, Shirley Eaton. Oddjob is in this again. Or excuse me, Oddjob is in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Uh, Michael Mellinger. I definitely recognize his face. I've seen him before. Desmond Leland as Q. He played Q up until the '90s. You know, and unfortunately, you know, being old age, I believe he passed. So therefore, they had to change it to somebody else. Um, what else we got here? Tagline, Miss Honey and Miss Galore have James Bond back for more. I, see, I like when they rhyme. It just, it, it I don't know, it has like such a little charm to it. You know, like, 
one, two, three, four, someone's at the door, whatever. Like, I'm just like, oh, cool. Like, I don't, it just, it, to me, it makes much more sense instead of them being like, in this time, he means business. Like, that's just so stupid. Like, of course he means business. It's James Bond. Anyway, the movie was the fastest grossing movie in movie history when it released, and it was entered into the Guinness Book of World Records. That's a trip. When Dame Shirley Basie recorded the theme song, she was singing as the opening credits were running on the screen in front of her so that she could match the vocals. When she hit her final high note, the titles kept running and she was forced to hold the note until she almost passed out. This echoes the experience of Sir Tom Jones when recording Thunderball. Tom Jones is cool that he uh, did the uh, recording for uh, that film. She has told the story that she only managed to hold the note after removing a restricting bustier that she was wearing. That's a trip. Uh, Aston Martin was initially reluctant to part with their two cards of the production. The producers had to pay for the Aston Martin. But after the success of the film, both at the box office and for the company, they never had to spend money on the car ever again. Sir Sean Connery never traveled to the U.S. to film this uh, movie. Every scene in which he appears to be in the U.S. was filmed at Pinewood Studios outside of London, explaining why Bond flips a light switch down to discover the golden corpse of Jill, as British light switches are generally turned on by flicking them down instead of up. Oh, I guess I didn't notice that. But yeah, I mean, that's very early on in the film. Uh, Actor-director Guy Hamilton, uh, C.C. Linder, a.k.a. Felix, was the only main actor in the Miami sequence who was actually there. Connery, Gert Frobe, Shirley Eden, Margaret Nolan, uh, Austin Wallace, who played Goldfinger, the card victim, all filmed their parts when filming started in Britain, with near, or excuse me, with rear projections used, and the case of Wallace, stand-ins used for long shots. All right, let me see what else we got going on here. That's enough for uh, trivia. It's just something to be said about uh, old films, man. They're just so, just, I, I don't know, they're just the way that they're shot, the way they're presented, it's just different compared to what we have now. Released January 9th, 1965 in the UK and the US. Language is spoken English, Chinese, and Spanish. They don't uh, specify which Chinese dialect. I mean, it could be, you know, Cantonese or Mandarin. I'm not quite sure. Production company, Eon Productions, and of course, UA, United Artists at the time. Uh, budget three million and it grossed fifty one million, so that's pretty cool. All right, let's see what Wiki has to say. Nineteen sixty four spy film uh, as the fictional MI six agent James Bond, based on the nineteen fifty nine novel of the same name by Ian Fleming. Uh, Goldfinger was heralded as the film in the franchise where James Bond comes into focus. It releases uh, led a number of promotional licensed tie-in items, including the Austin Martin Corgi toys, became the best-selling toy of 1964. Promotion also included an image of the gold painted Eaton on the cover of Life. Shelley Eaton, that is. Uh, in 1999, it was ranked number 70 on the BFI, the British Film Institute, top 100 British films uh, compiled of all time. That's pretty cool. Um, let's see what else we got here. Production-wise, while From Russia With Love was in production, Richard Maybaum began working on the script of On Her Majesty's Street Secret Service as the intended next film within the series. However, in September 1964, there was not enough time to prepare location shooting in Switzerland, and that adaptation was put on hold. I believe that one comes out in the... Shit. Uh, maybe late 70s, early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And then Fleming surrounded Thunderball, still in the high core producers, Albert R. Broccoli, turned to Goldfinger as the third Bond film instead. It was the Bond film that classified as a box office blockbuster at the time, chosen with the North American cinema market in mind as the previous films had concentrated on the Caribbean and Europe scene as far as films go. Uh, Terrence Young, who directed both previous films, uh, there was a dispute and he denied percentage of the film's profits. Oh, that sucks. Broccoli and Saltzman turned into uh, Guy Hamilton instead to direct. Hamilton, who had turned down directing Dr. No, which was the first film with Sean Connery. Uh, I remember seeing that. Uh, maybe 10 years ago my first time and I was like oh this is so cool just different different vibes you know 
that film played crucial roles in development uh, of this film, uh, Goldfinger, it being the uh, first uh, installment, with Simmons choreographing, uh, choreographing, yeah, with his choreography for fight sequences, can't fucking speak English, uh, between Bond and Oddjob in the vault of Fort Knox, which was not just seen as one of the best Bond fights, but also must uh, stand as one of the greatest cinematic combats. Well, uh, yeah, I, I could see that, but I mean, have they not seen the Raid or Raid Redemption as far as great cinematic combats? Anyway, that, I mean, then it's all subjective, of course. Whilst Adam's efforts on Goldfinger were luxuriantly Baroque and have resulted in the film being called one of the finest pieces of work of all time. And yeah, it, it has very memorable quotes and it's really cool. Uh, Writing-wise, Harry Saltzman disliked the first draft of uh, Goldfinger, saying that it was too American and brought Paul Den in to revise it. Interesting. Uh, Maybaum, however, based the pre-credit sequence on the opening scene of the novel where Bond is waiting at a Miami airport contemplating his recent killing of Latin American drug smuggler. Uh, Wolf Mankiewicz, an uncredited screenwriter of Dr. No, suggested the scene where Aja put his car into a car crusher to dispose of Mr. Solo's body. I don't know what Mr. Solo, but fucking Harrison Ford, apparently. <laughs> Shout out to Star Wars. Because of the quality of work of Maybaum and Den, the script and the outline for Goldfinger become the blueprint for future Bond films. And I can see that. Filmed at Pinewood Studios, of course. RAF, uh, North Holt, uh, Royal Air Force, you know, of course. Uh, principal photography began in 1964, moving to Switzerland and wrapping up in July uh, 11th of that year. Broccoli earned... Uh, Albert R. Broccoli uh, earned permission to film in Fort Knox area with the help of his friend, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Russon, to shoot Pussy, Pussy Galore's flying circus gassing the soldiers. The pilots were only allowed to fly above 3,000 feet. Yes, one of the uh, female's names. She's a pilot. She kind of has like a masculine kind of voice, but she was attractive. Yeah, and her name in the film was Pussy Galore. Yeah, classic, right? Uh, for security reasons, filming and photography were not allowed near or inside the United States Bullion Dis Depository, and I'm not surprised. Uh, Harry Saltzman disliked the design's resemblance to a prison, but Hamilton liked it enough that it was built. The uh, prison, that is. Uh, the comptroller for Fort Knox later sent a letter to Adam and the production team complimenting them on their imaginative depiction of the vault uh, with a spinning engine and chronometer and other decorative pieces. That's pretty cool. Effects-wise, uh, before Goldinger gadgets were not really a part of Bond's world. Production designer Ken Adam chose the DB5 because it was the latest version of the Aston Martin. The company was initially reluctant, but was finally convinced to make a product placement deal. In the script, the car was armed only with a smoke screen, but every crew member began suggesting gadgets to install it. Adam and engineer John Steers overhauled the prototype of the Aston Martin DB5 coupe, installing these and other features into the car over six weeks' time. That's crazy. Two of the gadgets were not installed into the car. The wheel-destroying spikes, uh, that was pretty cool, and then uh, he... Uh, he pops, um, it's not pussy galore, it's another female's uh, tires, then he brings her into the car, and yeah. Inspired by Ben-Hur's scythe chariots, and I could see that, considering they were both, you know, filmed in the 60s, makes sense. Lasers did not exist in 1959, so when the book was written, nor did high-power industrial lasers at the time during the film was made, of course, making them a novelty. In the novel, Goldfinger uses a circular saw to try and kill Bond, but the filmmakers changed it to a laser to make the film feel a little more fresh. I mean, it would have worked either way, but it probably would have had it more of like a slasher kind of feel if it was a chainsaw, or excuse me, a, a circular saw. Uh, I wouldn't mind reading that. It'd be kind of interesting. I wonder if the same kind of dialect too between him and a, or not dialect, excuse me, uh, dialogue between him and a Bond uh, and Goldfinger. Uh, Hamilton immediately thought of giving the laser a place in the film's story as Goldfinger's weapons of choice. Laser beam itself was an optical effect added in post-production for close-ups where the film cuts through metal. Technician Burt Luxford heated metal with a blowtorch from underneath the table to which Bond was strapped. Makes sense that they were able to achieve it that way without actually... You know, it being visually seen. 
Uh, the opening credit sequence designed by graphic designer Robert Brownjohn, featuring clips of all James Bond films, thus projected on Margaret Nolan's body. It was designed by inspired by seeing light projecting on people's bodies as they got up and left uh, a cinema. Visually, the film uses uh, mostly golden motifs, reflecting the novel's treatment of Goldfinger's obsession with that particular uh, metal alloy. All of Goldfinger's female henchwomen, henchwomen excuse me, in the film except his private jet co-pilot, uh, black hair and stewardess, who is Korean and red blonde, uh, including Pussy Galore and her flying circus, as it's called in the book. Uh, Bond is bound to cutting the bench with a sheet of gold on it as Goldfinger points it out to him before nearly being lasered. Right, and it's going up his uh, his groin area, and obviously he doesn't get uh, killed because obviously there's more Bond films, right? Goldfinger's factory henchmen in the film wear yellow sashes. Pussy Galore wears a metallic gold vest and her yellow sunburst insignia on their uniforms. Shirley Eaton as the murdered Jill Masterson was one of the most enduring images in cinematic history. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's on her stomach and they use a pillow to basically cover up her butt so you don't see anything. It's just... Yeah, because it's 1964. They don't need to show that. I, I get it. It's it, it's iconic, though. Um, it premiered in London September 17th, 1964. Goldfinger was temporarily banned in Israel because of the Gert Frobe connections with the Nazi party. Interesting. Promotional marketing campaign with the Austin Martin DB5's New York World's Fair dubbed the most famous car in the world. There was dress shoes, action figures, board games, jigsaw puzzles, lunchboxes. There was a lot of cool stuff to promote the film. That's really cool. Uh, critical response. Let's see what we got here. I'm, you know who I'm looking for. I'm looking for the great old Roger Ebert. Okay, found him. What do we got here? Roger Ebert, the Chicago Sun-Times, declared this to be his favorite Bond film and later added it to his greatest movies list. Rotten Tomato gives it a 99% out of a score of 8.6 out of 10 on 69 reviews. Website's consensus reads, Goldfinger's where James Bond is no how he comes into focus and it features one of the most uh, iconic lines, a martini shaken, not stirred. That's very true. Very, very true. Uh... Home media-wise, uh, 1994 in the U.S., Europe on video CD. So a fucking <laughs> a CD that you get from warehouse in a little plastic sleeve or Costco or something. Like, what the fuck? I don't know what a video CD. I mean, I know FMV, full motion video from, like, you know, Sega CD or TurboGrafx CD or, you know, a Panasonic 3DO. What the fuck's a video CD? What are you going to do with the CDs? Three ninjas and he throws them at the guy's face. Yeah, anyway, ADD's kicking in. Okay, it was a first released on DVD in the U.S. in 1997 by MGM Home Entertainment. Metro, Goldwyn, Mayer, and then Europe in 2000, of course. Impact and Legacy. Goldfinger, it just, it represents the peak of a series. It's the most perfectly realized of all films originally, with a hardly wrong step made throughout its entire length. Uh, it moves at a rather fast and furious pace. The plot holds together uh, logically enough, uh, rather more logically rather than the book, apparently, is what I'm reading. And it's a perfect blend of real and the fantastic at the same time. It It is a sight to behold and well worth your time. There is Goldfinger moving on to the next Bond film. Well... Uh, since I'm watching it and talking about it, another Sean Connery uh, as far as chronology goes uh, for 007. Thunderball, 1965, PG, two hours and ten minutes. Look up, look down, look out. Here comes the biggest Bond of all, Sean Connery's Thunderball. That's what it says on uh, the uh, cover art here. And it just, I love the cartoony effects. You know, he's wearing the iconic jetpack. He's doing the fight scene underneath the water. It's just, it's Ian Fleming's... I just, these are just so much fun. 
and has a 6.9 out of 123,000. James Bond heads to the Bahamas to recover two nuclear warheads stolen by Spectre, Agent Emilio Largo, in an international extortion scheme. Uh, what do we got here? Directed by Terrence Young. Let's see. That sounds like a very, very familiar name. I, I feel like I should know what else this individual did. Let's uh, let's take a look here. Uh, Dr. No, the first film from Russia with Love, Thunderball, and Wait Until Dark. So it seems like a lot of these guys who direct these Bond films uh, tend to stick with just Bond. I mean, they know that it works, so hey, more power to them. Uh, written by John Hopkins, Jack Winningham, and Richard Maybaum, once again. Starring Sean Connery, Claudine Auger, Aldolfo Celli. So let's see what we got going on here. Aldolfo Celli playing number two, or Largo, I guess, in this case. Uh, Claudine Auger playing Domino, Luciana Paluzzi playing Fiona, Molly Peters playing Patricia, Bernard Lee playing M, Desmond Leland as Q once again, of course, of course, I don't really recognize anybody else. All right, moving on here. James Bond continues on the fourth mission with aim to recover two solo mordheads. They have been taken by Spectre organization as the world's hostages Bond heads to Nassau, Bahamas. Here he meets Domino is forced into the thrilling confrontation with Agent Emilio Largo on board his boat, the Disco Volante. Uh, trivially, Bond's jetpack was actually flown by engineer Bill Souter. He was the only one of two people in the world qualified to fly it. That's a trip. Then again, I imagine this being probably one of the first jetpacks i guess of its time uh in the underwater scene trivially where bond encounters sharks sir sean connery was supposed to be protected by clear plastic panels shielding him from sharks in close-up range however the panels only extended about three feet in height where the sharks could swim over them as a result in some scenes notably during the pool fight at largo's mansion connery got much closer to the real sharks than he wanted to initially wow director terence young said in an interview that the scenes used in the film where bond reacts in fright at the approach of a shark or a miscues in which Connery was reacting with genuine terror as the shark approached unobstructed by plastic shielding. Wow, that's a trip, and they just stuck with it. Uh, the only Bond film where we got a glimpse of all double O agents in one shot. They are summoned to M's briefing. Uh, that's very uh, much, so. yeah, okay. And 007 is the last to join, and he sits down in the only available chair, the seventh from the left. Only one of the other double O's is revealed, however, as the film is from behind. Uh, you're right. They're, excuse me. They are filmed from behind those uh, particular agents. Let's see what else we got here at Trivially. This is always pretty interesting. Sir Sean Connery performed the gun barrel sequence for the first time because of the new Panavision process used in this film. Beginning with this movie, the sequence would be performed by the actor playing Bond in the film. It was the most popular Bond movie, lastly, with uh, paying audiences racking up $140 million in ticket sales. Goldfinger 64 with 130 million ticket sales, ranking number two in popularity. So this one was considered... Well, I can see it goes over a little the edge with a little more of the action and the uh, um, the gadgets that he used and the dialogue. and it, they, they definitely upped the ante on this compared to Goldfinger. But, uh, I mean, they're both great. You know, I, I'm having fun with this one. I, I like it a lot. It is a 1965 spy film. It is the fourth in the series following the mission to film of two NATO atomic bombs stolen by Spectre. Uh, it is, although planned by Bond within the film series and Harry Saltzman, it was the it was planned as the first entry in this uh, franchise, but Thunderball was associated with the legal dispute in 61. Former Ian Fleming collaborators McClory and Whittingham sued him shortly after the 1961 publication of that particular novel. Uh, it, the film was exceptionally successful. Worldwide box office receipts of $141.2 million. Okay. Followed by... 1967's You Only Live Twice, I have that one as well, and 1983, uh, Warner Brothers released a second film adaptation of Thunderball 
uh, Never Say Never Again. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize it was the second adaptation um, with McClory as executive producer. I didn't realize it was basically a a rehash or spinoff, I guess, if you will, however you want to look at it. I didn't realize that. That's cool. Um, casting. Guy Hamilton was invited, or excuse me, Broccoli's original choice, Albert R. Broccoli, for uh, the role of Domino. Derval was Julie Christie, following her performance in Billy Liar in 63. Okay, that's cool. Uh, Raquel Welch was also disappointed that she was, uh, her tensions were turned towards after seeing her on the cover of the October 1964 issue of Life. Welch was hired by Richard Zanuck of 20th Century Fox to appear in the film Fantastic Voyage. I remember Fantastic Voyage. That's the one with Donald Pleasance where they shrink down, go inside this guy to get, you know, cancer cells. And there's like the antigens and the uh, white blood cells and so forth. It's such a trip, dude. Uh, it's such a cool movie. Uh, I think I have a double feature. It's like with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or something, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Faye Dunaway was also considered for the role and came close to signing on the part. Interesting enough. That's pretty cool. Uh, Guy Hamilton, filming-wise, was invited to direct, considered himself worn out on creativity, drained after the production of Goldfinger, the film before, Doctor, uh, when Salzman invited him to direct for Dr. No. Thunderball was the final James Bond film directed by uh, Young, actually. Terrence Young, that's crazy. Uh, filming commenced on 19... Or excuse me. Yes, 1965, February 16th. Uh, filming was uh, in Chateau d'Anne in uh, Paris, apparently, as well as Dreux in uh, France. Huntington Harford gave permission to shoot footage in the Paradise Island and is thanked at the end of the film in uh, the Bahamas. That's pretty cool. After reading the script, Sean Connery realized the risk of the sequence with the sharks in the uh, Largo's pool and insisted that the production designer, Ken Adam, build a plexiglass partition inside the pool. It was not a fixed structure, so when one of the sharks managed to pass through it, Connery fled the pool seconds away from the attack. He later told the UK newspaper that the ejector seat... <laughs> wow, hang on. We had to use special effects, but unlike any special effects today, they were actually real. Therefore, they were practical effects. The jetpack was used in Thunderball was real. Invented by the United States Army. Bloody dangerous. It only lasted a couple minutes. Here, I'll just read it in Sean Connery's action. How about that? Uh, I'll try and make it as audible and comprehensible as possible. The ejector seat in the Aston Martin was real, and Emilio Largo's boat, the Disco Volante, was real. Uh, I, I gotta stop. I will just continue to read about that. You had power boats at the time, but there were no good-sized yachts that were able to travel to 40-50 knots, so it was quite a problem. But by combining a hydrofoil, which we bought in Puerto Rico for 10 grand, and a catamaran, uh, at least looked like a big yacht to them. We combined the two holes with one-inch slip bolt, and when they split, it worked like a dream. We used a lot of sharks for this film. I rented a villa in the Bahamas with a saltwater pool, which we filled with sharks and used for underwater filming. The smell was horrendous. There, <laughs> This was where Sean Connery came close to being bitten. We had pexy... Pexy, yes. We had the Pixies play, uh, you know, fucking 20 years prior to them being uh, important in rock history. No. We had fucking plexiglass, is what I was trying to say, corridor to protect him, but I didn't have quite enough plexiglass as one of the sharks got through. Uh, he never got out of the pool faster in his life. He was walking on water. That's pretty funny. Uh, special effects coordinator John Steers provided a supposedly dead shark to be towed around the pool. The shark, which was actually still alive, revived at one point due to the dangers on set. Stuntman Bill Cummings demanded an extra fee of 250 pounds to double for a Largo sidekick, Quist, as he was dropped into the pool of sharks. That's funny. That's crazy. Uh, wow. Uh, release and reception here. So it became the third highest grossing film of 65 behind The Sound of Music, and I can see that in Dr. Zhivago. Yes, I could see those two being much uh, bigger staples uh, of that year as far as sales go. Thunderball won Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, and I can get on board with that because as far as any of the other Bond films that I've seen of this era, it has probably some of the best effects thus far. 
Uh, yeah, sure, you see the uh, wire that's holding Sean Connery on the uh, um, jetpack, but it, obviously it's a stunt actor, but I mean, it looks like Sean Connery. But he, I mean, well, okay. So you see the actual jetpack and you don't see the guy's face, therefore you know it's not Sean Connery. But when Sean Connery has the jetpack on, you can see the wire on him, you know, holding him afloat or steady, however you want to look at it. But I mean, it's what they had at the time and it still works. I can care less. I like it. There's a charm to it. Uh, what do we got here? Ooh. Uh, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times found the film to be more humorous than its previous installments and felt that the Thunderball is pretty too. It is filled with such underwater action as it would delight Captain Jacques Cousteau, <laughs> the French, uh, I guess, animal enthusiast. That's pretty cool. He further praised the principal actors and wrote, The color is handsome. The scenery in the Bahamas is irresistible. Lure. Even the violence is funny. That's the best that I can say for a Bond film. Okay. Chicago Tribune. What do we got here? Clifford Terry, actually, not uh, Roger Ebert this time around. Uh, felt the dialogue was so bad, it's great. And highlighted Alger as probably the most genteel of all Bond babes to date. Overall, he felt the film belonged to Connery, of course, writing that he throws out those incredible lines with so much as batting a steely cold eye. Very much so. Like, he gets into a fight and he's just like, I'll take you on. Like, yeah, he's very, he's very Indiana Jones of his time. So, therefore, I'm glad that they casted him in The Last Crusade in the third installment of the Indiana Jones trilogy as you know, Dr. Jones's dad, you know, and he calls him Henry, like emasculating him. They're, they're basically one and the same. This is just a much more like upscale, like rich, you know, version of Indiana Jones, or at least it's how I like to view it. Then Indiana Jones is a lot more rugged, you know, like they're very much so one and the same personally. And I think that's probably why they got cast together. Anyway, uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, has a certified fresh 87% based on 52 reviews, uh, giving it a 6.7. Website's consensus reads, lavishly rendered set pieces, Sean Connery's enduring charm makes Thunderball a big fun adventure, even if it doesn't quite measure up the series' previous heights. Metacritic, 64 out of 100 out of 9 critics, indicating generally favorable reviews. Uh, yeah, it is good. Uh, I think I liked maybe Goldfinger more. It just... I don't know, the pacing and just the way that it was written, the dialogue. This movie, it works as well. It's just a little more over the top compared to the other uh, film. No uh, Sylvester Stallone pun of that film intended. But hey, it is what it is. All right, moving on to the next thing. I'm going to be talking to you guys about two, uh, I guess, CD-based consoles that, well, they're more like add-ons, but they're almost also like their own kind of CD-based console. I don't really feel like really too much, I guess, information gets spoken of uh, in regards to these uh, iconic classic consoles. Uh, one is probably a little more well-known over the other, but I'm going to be talking, first of all, Sega CD, and I think... A lot of people know this one more so than they know the other one that I will talk about after uh, I'm done talking about this one. Released as the Mega CD in uh, most regions outside of North America and uh, Brazil. CD-ROM accessory to the Sega Genesis. There was a Model 1 and a Model 2. Released December 12, 1991 in Japan, North America, April 2, 1993. It adds uh, hardware functionality such as faster CPU, graphic enhancements such as sprite scaling and rotation. You know, the uh, Mode 7, parallax scrolling, all that good stuff. It can also play audio CDs. I don't think I knew that. Sega saw... I mean, you, you really, as far as in the wild, you much more so see the uh, second one, if you see it at all. As far as uh, Model 1 is concerned, you rarely ever see that one in the wild. Uh, I would like to personally own both, considering I own both Sega Genesis. I mean, you can find a Sega Genesis probably 40 50 bucks 
pretty much anywhere, really. Um, it was to match the capabilities of the competing PC Engine CD-ROM uh, at the time. Uh, hint about what I'm going to be talking about next. Uh, <laughs> added an additional CPU and custom graphics chip. Partnered with JVC to design the Sega CD. Fearful of leaks. Of course, the Sega CD was redesigned several times by Sega and licensed third parties. They had very little third-party development, uh, Sega did. I think that's why they flopped, because it was mostly hardware and very little software. That's just a, a big theory that I have, and it, to me it makes the most sense. The main benefit of CD technology at the time, there was greater storage. CDs offered more than 160 times more than the cartridges. Uh, manifestation of FMV, full motion video, such as the uh, controversial game Night Trap, which is on the Sega Genesis Mini Model 2 that they have now. You can pick those up on Amazon still. I think less for less than 100 bucks. Uh, I will probably have to get one eventually. Uh, Night Trap becoming a focus of a 1993 congressional hearing on issues of video game violence and ratings. The Sega CD game library features acclaimed uh, titles such as Sonic CD, which I think I have that on the unlockable version of the uh, Sonic Mega Collection on GameCube, if I'm not mistaken. The Silver Star uh, Lunar uh, game, you know, like Lunar uh, Silver Star and Lunar uh, Silver Star Saga, which ended up being ported to um, PlayStation 1 as well. Uh, Eternal Blue and Popful Mail, which there was also a Genesis port of uh, Popful Mail, but then the CD version just, it looks incredible. It looks like a platforming uh, action-adventure game. It, it looks absolutely beautiful, as well as uh, Snatcher being mostly uh, the Japanese port, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there were many gen Genesis ports, but poorly received FMV games, of course, because it looks a lot better on a CD. Only 2.224 million uh, Sega CD units were actually sold, after which Sega discontinued it to focus on the Sega Saturn in, what, probably 95, if I'm not mistaken. So this only lasted two, three years, give or take, you know, before being canned. Crazy. Sega's poor support for the Sega CD had been criticized as the beginning of the devaluation of its brand. Interesting. Yeah, because I'd say their most successful as far as a brand probably was the Genesis, and then as far as after the fact being bought out by Nintendo and so forth, Microsoft and all that, probably just publication of games, you know, after the fact. I mean, they tried one more time with the Dreamcast, but obviously fell apart, but it is what it is. Um, the Genesis came out in 88. Uh, by the early 1990s, CDs were making headway as a storage medium for music and video games. NEC being the first... Uh, NEC and Hudson Soft, I will explain, being the first to use CD technology in a video game console with their PC Engine CD-ROM system, uh, which I will talk about momentarily. That year, Nintendo announced a partnership with Sony, as I've stated before, to develop a CD-ROM peripheral for the SNES, which was supposed to debut in 1991. The uh, Super Nintendo did debut in 1991, but uh, Sony opted out, and they decided to hold off for a few years, then they released their own console, i.e. the PlayStation in 1995. Uh, there was also the CD-based CD TV multimedia system with the CDI from Philips arriving that year. I don't see anything about the Panasonic 3DO, so maybe I'll talk about that another time. Uh, also a very weird, obscure console that nobody really talks about. According to Nick Thorpe of Retro Gamer, Sega would have received criticism from investors and observers if it had not developed a CD-ROM gaming system. And rightly so. Surprising that Nintendo didn't receive any issues because they didn't develop their CD-fucking-based anything until they had their tiny discs with the GameCube in the early millennium. So, whatever. I mean, you know, and then Nintendo also decided to go back now with cartridges. Their tiny little pegs or whatever the fucking people call them. Uh, the Switch cartridges. It's it's incredible. I love how... It's like the size of, like, a penny. And I'm like, there's a game on that? Just crazy. Anyway. Uh, development. At, shortly after the release of the Genesis, Consumer Products Research Development Labs uh, by manager Tomio Takami were tasked with creating a CD-ROM add-on. 
uh, involving twice as much random accessory memory, RAM, in addition to relatively short loading times, which, yeah, it, it is from what I've seen. I don't have one. I got a buddy who has one. It's just, it's so cool because you don't really see these too much in the wild or see too many people use them. It's a regular Genesis controller. It just has its own little uh, connection piece that hooks up to the Genesis and you turn on the Genesis to turn the game on. Uh, it, it, it's crazy how it works. It's just ahead of its time. As early as 1990, magazines were covering the CD-ROM expansion for the Genesis. Sega announced the release of the Mega CD in uh, Japan for late 1991, North America in 1992. Unveiled to the public in 1991, Tokyo Toy Show. Initially retailing at Japan uh, yen, 49,800 yen. Though the Mega CD sold quickly, small installed base of the Mega Drive in Japan meant that sales declined rapidly. And yeah, I can, I can see that. In October of 92, the Mega CD was released in North America as the uh, next... Uh, you know, I guess invention or excuse me, welcome to the next level of uh, that was their you know tagline, I guess, uh, with a retail price of two ninety nine. It's basically yeah, it's like another console. I mean, with that price, yeah. Sega CD sold over two hundred thousand units by the end of ninety two and three hundred thousand by July of ninety three. As part of Sega sales, Blockbuster LLC purchased Sega CD used for rentals in their stores. Sega of America emphasized that Sega CD's additional storage space allowed for FMV games, as I've stated before. Uh, the Mega CD launched in Europe in April of 93, and it sold at a uh, pounds of 269 pounds. The European version was packed with Soul, uh, yeah, Soul Dice and Cobra Command, a two-disc set, along with compilation CD of five Mega Drive games. That's pretty cool. Brazilian toy company Tech Toy released Sega CD in Brazil in October of 93, retaining the North American name despite the name of the Mega Drive for the base console there. Oh, that sucks for them. I mean, well, it's nice to know that they had both, so they kind of you know were able to develop the concept of understanding both Mega Drive and Genesis is the same fucking thing. Uh, Sega released a second model, the Sega CD2, released in North America several months later, bundled with the best-selling C Sega CD game at the time, Sega, or excuse me, uh, Sewer Shark. Uh, declined by the end of 1993, sales of the Sega CD had stalled and were slowing in North America. Uh, 1.5 million, million units sold in the U.S. and 415,000 in Europe alone. That's it. In early 95, Sega shifted its focus to Saturn, discontinuing advertising Genesis hardware, including the Sega CD, discontinuing the Sega CD in the first quarter of 96. That's crazy. Uh, the last scheduled Sega CD game were Ports of Mist, which is a PC game, and Brain Dead 13. I've never heard of that one, which was canceled. 2.24 million Sega CD units were sold worldwide at that time when Sega... Uh, Saturn decided to uh, take over. So there's the Genesis Model 1 and Sega CD Original. There's the uh, uh, Sega CD Second Model. And then there's the uh, Genesis CDX. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. That's the JVC one, if I'm not mistaken. So there's the uh, portable. What do we got here? Uh, right. There's the Wonder Mega redesigned JVC XI, which is incredibly expensive. It's like $500, $600 alone. And it looks like just your average like CD player, but it has a Genesis little cartridge port on the back, which is cool. And it will play Sega CD games as well. It's basically like a built-in boombox uh, released by Iowa, the uh, speaker guys at the time, released in Japan of 1994, the uh, JVC XI. There's also the Wonder Mega, which looks really cool. The Wonder Mega 2, that's the one that we got here, I believe, that has the uh, little green button on it. And then there's the Pioneer Laser Active, which is a LaserDisc player. It plays Genesis and Sega CD. You never see that fucking thing. You probably never will either because it's incredibly expensive. Uh, Well-regarded Sega CD games, Sonic CD, Lunar Silver Star Story, as I've stated before, Street to Rage CD, Echo the Dolphin, Batman Returns, of course, Champion Challenger from the Dark Side, 
um, reception and legacy. There was the model uh, two with the Genesis 32 attached, making it the power uh, or tower power power. Fuck, can you speak English? Tower of power. That's what I was trying to say. I can't speak English. Holy crap. Um, it's just, yeah. I mean, I got it. Like I said, I have a buddy who has the Model 2. I think I've seen the Model 1 before. And it's like almost like, I don't know, seeing like an astronaut unicorn like <laughs> go to Saturn and bring back like Saturn dust. Or, I mean, it's like, one of that, that's a bad example. But I'm just saying it's like one of those things you just don't see every day. You see the Model 2, maybe a... <sighs> If you go to frequent game stores, mom and pop stores, you might see it like once or twice a year, but you rarely ever see the Model 1. You'll never see the JVC XI or the, uh, what was the other one I, I mentioned? The uh, Wonder Mega. You'll never see that, the RGM1 and the Wonder Mega RGM2, as well as you'll never ever see the Pioneer Laser Active that plays all of those, the Genesis Laser Disc and Sega CD, because they're just so damn expensive. Uh, I want to say I've seen like listings on like offer up on Facebook Marketplace, but I've never seen it in person. The uh, CDX, the um, or the JVC XI, same fucking thing. But on that note, since I was talking about uh, CD-ROM based uh, consoles, I will also talk about the TurboGrafx CD-ROM as well as the uh, PC Engine CD-ROM uh, Two, I guess, or Squared, I guess, is what they also want to call the interface unit. Add-on attachment for the PC Engine that was released in Japan, December fourth, nineteen eighty-eight. The allowed add-ons for the core versions of the console to play PC Engine games in CD-ROM format in addition to standard Hue cards. The Hue cards look like basically like, picture like your little Visa MasterCard and you plug that into uh, the console and that's your game. There's a game on a fucking debit card is basically what it looks like. I love the Turbo Graphics. I have my Mini and I love that thing. I'm glad that I paid 100 for it at the time and uh, the thing, that little piece of plastic now goes for like $300. It's insane. Um making the PC Engine the very first video game console to use CD-ROM as a storage media. Media. I've also seen the Turbo Duo. I've seen that in Japan when I was there. Next time I go, shit, I might just have to pick up the Turbo Duo, dude. It's like a cool piece of fucking history, and I would love to play it. Uh, the CD player itself is the interface unit connecting to the CD player console and provides a unified power supply unit output for both. That's cool. Later released as the TurboGrafx CD in the U.S. in November of 89. So, yeah, a year later, crazy, just about. Remodeled interface unit in order to suit the different shape of the TurboGrafx-16 console. The TurboGrafx uh, CD had a launch price of, damn, dude, $399. So $400. Did not include any bundled games. Fighting Street and Monster Lair were the launch titles. Eastbook and uh, Eastbook 1 and Eastbook 2, YS. It's pronounced, if you ever see that game in the wild, it's pronounced East. You don't say YS, the... Classic action-adventure RPG. No, it's East. East is how you pronounce it. Super CD-ROM. In 1991, NEC introduced upgraded version of the CD-ROM 2 known as the Super CD-ROM 2. Updating BIOS files RAM of 64 kilobytes to 256. That's a major jump, especially for that time. Upgrade released in several forms. The first was PC Engine Duo on September 21st, following the Super System card released on October 26th, an upgrade for the existing CD-ROM 2 that served as a replacement to the original system card. Uh, add-on released December 13th, combining the CD-ROM drive interface unit and a super system card into one device. That's pretty cool. Uh, I've never seen that. I've definitely seen the CD-ROM too. I've seen the super graphics in the wild. It's just the same thing. Like you don't really see any turbo graphic stuff very, very often in the wild. And when you do, people know what it goes for and you're going to, you're going to pay for it. 
there were variations. There was a core graphics. The PC Engine core graphics is an updated model of the PC Engine, which was what it was called in Japan. Also released there December 8th, 1989. Released in the States as the Turbo Graphics. It's uh, 16. It's the same thing, just different name. Just like Mega Drive Genesis. Same fucking thing. It has the same form factor as the original PC Engine. It changes the color scheme from white and red to uh, black and blue, replacing the original radio frequency output connector with composite video, AV port, making it a lot easier. That way you don't have to use the RF cable. Aside from the different coloring, it is nearly identical to the original core graphics, except that the CPU was changed back to the original Hue card. That's cool. The uh, Super Graphics uh, released on the same day as the core graphics in Japan. It is an enhanced variation of the PC Engine hardware updated series. Super Graphics games and two hybrid games. As a result, only five exclusives, Darius Plus, Darius Alpha, were released on standard Hue cards, taking advantage of the extra video hardware if played on a Super Graphics. Oh, that's interesting. And it looks like they changed the controller too. It's also one of the very first controllers with a turbo button on it as well. You could literally move a little dial up on it and just hold the button rather than having to tap when you're playing a shooter and that is what the turbo graphics is fucking known for they have some of the best shooters mega drive has a lot of good shooters too um they, they do uh, as well as genesis of course um but yeah man pc engine turbo graphics they have some incredible arcade shooters that just are unmatched um, the PC Engine Shuttle, which is a different variation of the uh, model, it kind of looks like the Atari Jaguar, but it plays Hue cards, and it has kind of like a Batarang-looking controller, but it still has the turbo buttons. Uh, released Japan on November 22nd, 1989. It is a less expensive model of the console, retailing at 18,000 yen, targeting uh, primarily towards younger players with a spaceship-like design. Uh, okay, they literally... Made it look like that on purpose so kids would buy it. That's dumb. Bundled with a Turbo Pad 2 controller, shaped differently from the other standard Turbo Pad controllers. Got it. Reduced price was made possible by removing the expansion port from the back, making it the first model of the console that was not compatible with CD-ROM add-on whatsoever. Oh, wow. Well, that kind of sucks, but, I mean, if I find just the CD attachment or a separate, yeah, and then I just get this one. So I don't, well, we'll see. We'll see. The RF output used on the original PC Engine was also replaced with an AV port for the shuttle. The PC Engine shuttle was distributed in South Korea, released in 1990 by, by Daewoo Electronics. That's pretty cool. Obviously, then, I think I want to say I've talked about the Turbo Express before. It's basically a portable Turbo Graphics 16, kind of like uh, how Game Boy was. It's relatively similar looking to the Game Boy, just black, and it plays Hue cards. And then there's also the Turbo Duo, which, uh, like I've said before, plays both the CD and the uh, Hue card. But I will get into that, and I will talk about that right now. Uh, the Home Electronics released PC Engine Duo in January, or excuse me, in Japan, in September 21st, 1991. I have seen the white one, which happens to be the PC Engine one. I have never seen the uh, Turbo Graphics one, the Turbo Duo. Um, it, it's pretty common if you go to like the thrift stores or the mom and pop game stores in Japan. You see a lot of this stuff, like in cellophane or like bubble wrap pretty much just on their shelves just hanging out and i'm like oh my god you guys have like an incredibly rare console that i, I want so bad holy crap i had to get a sip of water there or carbonated water whatever uh the pc engine duo combines the pc engine the super cd rom into a single uh console it can play hue cards as well as audio cd cd g's uh, standard CD-ROM games and Super CD-ROM games. The North American version was launched in October of 1992, the Turbo Duo. Third-party model, uh, models, there were two updated variants, uh, the Duo R, the Duo RX, but the RX included a new six-button controller. That's pretty cool. Probably for uh, fighting games. They, they did have some fighting games too, but the Neo Geo was definitely probably the king of fucking fighting games, that's for sure. Uh, other formars, technical specifications, peripherals, uh, yeah, 
Uh, that's all I see as far as uh, CD-ROM based. Uh, I mean, it has a legacy. I mean, as far as Turbo Graphics uh, or PC Engine CD, I guess if you will, they have Akuma Joe, uh, Dracula X. That's where uh, Rondo of Blood, you know, kind of comes from. Uh, one of the greatest Castlevania games of all time. I have it on my Turbo Graphics Mini. I love that thing. Uh, Bonk, you know, the Caveman. They had some really cool platformers. Really great shooters. Uh, Sega CD had obviously um, Sonic CD. There's, um, you know, Shining in the Darkness uh, CD, which is a uh, RTS real-time strategy-based um, game. I mean, there is, uh, what, Popful Mail, um, uh, KEO Flying Squadron is a really cool cute em up that's incredibly expensive. So there's some really cool games for these consoles. It's just very, very expensive and very, very eclectic in a particular taste to collect for. But one day, perhaps I'll get all these things that I want, but, you know. I just decided to talk about it because I wanted to share my love for it with you guys. All right, moving on to the next thing. Well, what's going on, folks? Here I am once again with another subjective MSN top 25 worst horror movies of the 1980s. Uh, their suggestions along with my picks are probably going to differ greatly because... It, dude, I fucking love horror movies. Even, like, the really, really bad ones. Like, I just do. So, their list is going to suck. Let me get a sip of this energy drink here. I just woke up relatively uh, good morning. I was able to wake up, take care of the animals, and uh, use the restroom. And now I am looking at this list, and I am recording for you guys. All right. Their number 25 is Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Uh, so I'm just going to put, I'm going to put that on my own list. And uh, as you guys know, I'm going to make my own little, uh, separate list here. Uh, Friday the 13th part eight. Uh, I, I enjoy it. Not nearly as much as probably the first six, uh, seven, eight, and nine are kind of harder to get through, but I would probably watch them still in that order. Seven being the top and then eight, and then nine, of course, nine is probably the worst one for sure. And then eight, uh, you know, second place, but as number 25, I mean, because then again, I'm assuming they're only going to choose probably ones that are incredibly popular. They're not going to choose like, I'm guessing like Sleepaway Camp or Basket Case or The Burning or The Prowler or whatever the case may be, you know, or Maniac, Maniac Cop. They're probably going to choose the ones that everybody knows from the 80s is my guess. So I will put that one down and we will go from there and see what else we got going on here. Because I, I already, I already have a feeling I'm going to be pissed off at this list. Elves. Uh, I did see this one. This movie was fucking weird, and I know I talked about it. Uh, it. It's definitely bad, but it's it's weird. Yeah, elves can definitely go on there. Okay, 1989, yeah. Okay, all right. So maybe I stand corrected. Maybe they do know some of the weird ones. Let's see. Uh, Death Spa. I loved Death Spa. I talked about this, I don't know, a few months back on my show. I thought it was fucking great. I mean, it was really cool, like, you know, entity that takes over this uh, California spa and starts killing people. It was... It's so ridiculous. It was a lot of fun to watch. Has an amazing VHS cover, a skeletal beauty, and a muscle man. You know who work out. And it went horribly wrong. It's awesome. It's so cool. I loved Death Spa. So all right, whatever. Hobgoblins. Ah, uh, I don't know if I've honestly watched this one yet. Probably because I've seen Munchie and uh, Munchies, and obviously Goonies and Critters and Ghoulies. Uh, you know, after a while, they all kind of excuse me, energy drink there. They all kind of blend together there. Uh, Hobgoblins, sure, I'll put it on this list. I'll probably put it on the bottom as a worst, or maybe, well, no, because just like how I did with the uh, overrated guitarist, this is going to have to be subjectively backwards. Uh, obviously, number one being the worst uh, horror film and so forth. So, okay, all right, moving on, Hobgoblins. Uh, 
Uh, Return to Horror High. Uh, I liked it. It was a little slow. It, it, the pacing wasn't very, I mean, you know, good. I mean, George Clooney is there. It's around the same time that, like, he did Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It's 1987. Uh, he has a persona and charm when he joined the cast of Return to Horror High. Uh, this is the sequel. I remember, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. Uh, I'll put it on this list as well, and I'll, I'll talk about uh, where I'm going to put it here in a minute. Yeah, it's it's all right. I think I have like a box set with, uh, it's like class of 1999 or something else that's on there. I can't remember. I'd have to look at it. Howling three, the marsupials. I've honestly only seen howling one. Uh, and I haven't, I hear two's okay. I know Christopher Lee's in it. I hear three's whatever Four. I think they start to come back or maybe five. They start to come back. I got to watch the other ones. I mean, looking at it right now, it looks terrible. Howling three, the marsupials, like <laughs> the fucking, I didn't know that wolves were marsupials. I don't think they are. I mean, marsupial being like, you know, a wallaby like Rocco's Modern Life. Garbage day is a very dangerous day. Uh, <laughs> I love uh, Rocco's Modern Life. but uh... All right. Oh, my gosh. So despite uh, losing the great director Joe Dante and Howling 3, they swap out werewolves for kangaroos, hence the marsupial reference. Wow. Okay. Jesus. Uh, I'm sure it's garbage. Uh, sounds like some shit I'd have to watch. <coughs> hey, there it is, Munchies. I know I was talking about it. Yeah, it's it's bad, but it's it's very schlocky and entertaining for what it is. It's like Goonie, no, not Goonie. Sorry, uh, Gremlins meets uh, uh, fucking Critters, pretty much. And uh, they'll, they'll talk like this, and, you know. It's it's goofy. Uh, I liked it for what it was. It, it's not nearly as good as like other things, but it's you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. Uh, the first one is probably the best one. Three, four, and five kind of go off on like a different tale. There's like witches involved and bunch of weird paranormal type shit but uh Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2 is essentially like one mis mix matched like together it's it literally it's like 80% the first film and then like the last 15-20 minutes it's its own thing it, I don't know why they made it because it's literally just <laughs> copy paste the first one Silent Night Deadly Night 2 um I think, yeah, I, I've watched three, four, and five. I vaguely remember them, though. I might Probably because they weren't really anything worth remembering, but uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, I remember, is basically the same thing as the first film. So first one was the best. Um, what else we got here? Let's moving on. Uh, Jaws the Revenge. Uh, I have a soft spot for the Jaws films, uh, especially after one and two. One and two are just great films altogether. The second one, it's basically a picture a slasher, but you know, it's a shark killing people, uh, you know, cause the first one, obviously you don't see the shark until like damn near the end of the film, the first like hour and 20 minutes, then he shows up. Let me get a sip there. Um, the revenge 1987, that's where they got the uh, idea for the video game, you know, published by LJ and NES. And you have to kill him in the end with the, uh, boat, like how, uh, Ellen Brody does in the, um, uh, film, the Jaws of Revenge 1987. It's, I'd say the third one, you know, the 3D one is probably the worst because it's just so ridiculous, the whole 3D effects and everything. Jaws of Revenge, maybe the the plot is a dumb idea because, yeah, like the shark followed them all the way down to the Bahamas. Yeah, I get that. That's like very, very far-fetched. Sharks don't have that kind of brain capacity. I get that. So, sure, I mean, it, it deserves to be on this list. I would think three is probably the worst one compared to the fourth one. I mean, I, I love the third one, though, even though it's just so just dumb. Like, the whole uh, SeaWorld aspect, Dennis Quaid's in it. Jaws Revenge, 1987. So, okay, here we go. Moving on. Cellar Dweller. 
it wasn't as good as other Jeffrey Combs films, you know, i.e., uh, you know, Reanimator and uh, From Beyond and so forth. But uh, yeah, Cellar Dweller was interesting. It's Don Mancini. Uh, came out in 1988, the same guy who wrote, you know, the first Chucky Enduring Horror Icons of that same year. He also uh, churned out Cellar Dweller, directed by John Carl Buechler. But uh, Don Mancini wrote this. Um, it's a B movie, of course, you know, starring Jeffrey Combs. It's, uh, I enjoyed it. It's kind of like if uh, Creepshow had, like, rejected skits. That's, that's how I felt about it. it. It was, for what it is, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not anything spectacular, but it's enjoyable. Uh, rock and Roll Nightmare. Uh, I keep hearing this is a really, really bad one, and it's just batshit off-the-wall crazy. I think it deserves to probably be higher. It's probably regarded as one of the worst like horror films of all time. I have yet to really watch it. It's the uh, Hard Rock-based movie on this list uh, that would fare a little better than Hard Rock Zombies. Ah, that's the one that <coughs> they're watching on uh, American Drive-In. I have that film, and I haven't watched that one yet either. Uh, Canadian bodybuilder, former John Thor... Uh, in this film, Rock and Roll Nightmare takes its cues from Charlie Daniels instead of Black Sabbath, featuring a standoff between the guitarist and the devil. It's has really bizarre, weird, practical puppetry effects and so forth. But a Rock and Roll Nightmare, uh, I will definitely put it on here. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that it gets a pass. I, I've seen clips in, here and there of just weird, bizarre crap in this film. I just don't think I've actually sat down and watched the whole thing yet. Uh, Troll. Troll was pretty bad. That movie's fucking weird. It has, a uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it, one of her, uh, first films, or at least first adaptations of being screenshot anywhere. Uh, special effects by John Carl Buckler, Buechler, excuse me. Um, uh, they, you know, the, <sighs> bad movie fans know Troll 2 as one of the worst, uh, films of all time, along the lines of, like, uh, Garbage Pail Kids is what I was trying to convey. Uh, it's a titular title. It's, it's interesting, you know, he, the troll has this like ring and turns everything into like trees and it's, it's weird. It, uh, I, I like it for what it is cause it's just so campy and fun, but it's, it's definitely not very good. So, all right, I, I can see why it made this list. April Fool's Day. That is not a bad movie. That is a great fucking film. They're tripping. I love that horror film. Like I said, it's subjective. It has a really cool twist at the end. Uh, 1980s were the decade for slashers, lean and mean films about killers who off their victims in unique ways. April Fool's Day by the rules of the genre with its group of partying teens who end up dying one by one. But in the final moments, there reveals a twist. It only makes no sense, but takes the fun out of the scares that preceded it. That's not true. The synopsis says it doesn't make sense. I'd say it makes perfect sense. The whole title, like listen to the title, April Fool's Day. You know, it was also going to be called just Fools, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um... It's been a minute since I've looked at the history on that, but uh, yeah, it's it's great, dude. I, I loved it. Um, yeah, April Fool's Day is great. I don't think it's a bad film at all. Uh, Maximum Overdrive, nineteen eighty six. I believe. Yeah, it's the Stephen King master of horror. I hear this one's pretty bizarre because uh, King didn't really have any idea of uh, direction as far as what he wanted. It's one of the genre's greatest films as far as <laughs> being terribly uh, notorious. Uh, Stephen King and his outing behind the camera. King tells the story of the machines coming to life and terrorizing customers in a North Carolina diner. Uh, I've heard of it. Like I said, I mean, the iconic weird looking cars and so forth. I just have not actually sat down and uh, watched it, but I know about it and I've seen clips. So I'd like to say, I guess I know a little bit. Uh, moving on. What else we got here? Spookies. Uh, I haven't watched that one yet. Um, 
So some of these, some of these might get, you know what here, I will cross off the ones that I haven't watched and therefore they will get a pass. Maximum Overdrive off the list. Spookies off the list. Rock and Roll Nightmare off the list. Uh, Howling 3 off the list. Uh, Hobgoblins off the list. Okay. All right. Moving on. Uh, Transylvania 6500. I don't think it was bad at all. I thought it was a cool uh, horror comedy, man. And it's got, um, you know, Jeff Goldblum, Ed Bigley Jr., uh, Gina Davis is in it. Uh, fuck. Uh, Kramer, you know, from uh, Seinfeld, he's in it. I thought he was pretty funny. So I, I that one's on this list. It, I don't think it's a bad movie, though. I thought it was, I had a good time with it. I thought it was funny. So it's Transylvania 6500, or 65,000, whatever the fuck you want to call it. <coughs> It's, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's a fun, fun horror comedy. Uh, Making Contact, that one I'm not even going to put down because I've never heard of it, never seen it. Uh, I will have to delve into watching that sometime, though. Hard Rock Zombies, haven't watched that one yet. They placed that above Rock and Roll Nightmare, interesting. Okay, so I'm sure it's probably pretty bad then. Uh, Ghoulies, uh, they think Ghoulies is worse than, I mean, Ghoulies is fun, dude. I think it's better than the Munchies movie. Ghoulies is entertaining, and then the third one when they go to college. I mean, after a while, it's not even about the, you know, I guess campy scares or fun anymore. It's just about the random, like, who can they get nude and sometimes maybe kill in these movies. It's they're, it's entertaining. They progressively become worse. The first one's probably the best one, for sure. The Barbaric Beast of Boggy Creek Part 2. Never even heard of it. Didn't even know there was a first part one. So I this one also gets a pass. I will not talk about it. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, HUD. Oh, they, they fucking misspelled it. It's Chud, idiot. Fuck. I don't even think Chud's a bad movie, man. They're tripping, dude. John Hurd, uh, fucking Daniel Stern, you know, before that they worked together on uh, Home Alone. They're fucking tripping. They can't even spell it right. It says number five, H-U-D, 1984. And then it, it goes down and it says Chud, but they can't, it's fucking Chud, you idiots. Ah, man. Can't even get the fucking name right. And you think this film is worse than all the other ones mentioned? You guys are fucking high. Man, Chud is great. You guys are tripping. Even Bud the Chud, when they do like the Weekend at Bernie's type thing with a Chud. You guys are tripping. Saturday the 14th, that one gets a pass. Haven't seen it yet. I've been wanting to, just haven't haven't watched it yet. Amityville 2, The Possession. Uh, I don't know if I've watched that one yet. I've seen like the Amityville 3D, and I've seen like the other weird ones. I just don't think I've watched this one just yet. Um... <clears throat> Blood Beach. I have this one. I've been wanting to watch it because it's pretty fucking weird. A lousy flick about a monster below the surface of the sand, which so happens to have a memorable uh, cover. You know, the woman in the sand with her arms out. like Kind of like basically a picture like Platoon with Willem Dafoe, but she's in the sand and she's being sucked down below by this uh, creature in the sand. Haven't watched that one yet. I have it. I just haven't watched it yet. Uh, and that's what they have. That was their number one was Blood Beach. So, okay, what do we got here? We got... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, I got thirteen. Perfect. All right. So we will start at the bottom. Which ones I want to keep? I will keep. I will keep April Fool's Day at the bottom because I thought it was great. Death Ball will be number twelve. <coughs> Put Chud at eleven. Put Friday the Thirteenth at uh, part eight at ten. Elves was pretty fucking bad. Uh, Return to Horror High. Uh, dude, I got a soft spot for Jaws of Revenge. That goes at number nine. So like I said, these these have to go backwards. Uh, I will put... I'll probably put Cellar Dweller at eight. Um, I'll put Transylvania 6500 there at seven. Uh, I'll 
put Ghoulies, sure, maybe number six. I got a soft spot for that one. It's it's bad, though. It is bad. Uh, it's been a while since I've watched uh, Troll or Munchies. Well, actually, no. I watched Munchies recently. And it's like if Beetlejuice tried to make like some sort of like horror film. It's like goofy, campy like that mixed with like weird like Flintstones-y type, I don't know, antics. It's, it's weird, that's for sure. Uh, so I could do... Fuck, man. So, all right, I'm going to put Troll below. So I'm going to put Troll at five, and then Munchie's at four. Um, so, fuck, man. And I'm going to put Elves, I guess, at number, yeah, 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 that's what we'll do. Okay, so... All right, coming in at the bottom, we will go uh, Friday the 13th, Part 8, uh, Jaws of Revenge, uh, Cellar Dweller, Transylvania 65000, Ghoulies, Troll 1986, Munchies 1987, um, and I will do Return to Horror High, number 3, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2 is number Two, because I mean, it's basically the same thing as one, and one is better. So they they really didn't need to redo that. Elves nineteen eighty nine is number one on my little subjective list as being one of the worst. It's it's worth a watch, but it's fucking weird, man. It, it like there's some weird dialogue in there. It really doesn't make much sense. It's a bizarre, bizarre Christmas related horror film. But there you have it: twenty five worst horror movies of all time. All right, I'm going to be closing out today's uh, segment with uh, Diamonds Are Forever, 1971. Uh, it says the rating is GP. Sure, sure, okay. Uh, two hours long. It has a 6.5 out of 111,000. Uh, it's it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy it for what it is. I mean, you, you kind of know what you're getting into with these old Bond films for the most part. Uh, it's about a diamond smuggling investigation leading Bond to Las Vegas, where he uncovers an evil plot involving a rich business tycoon directed by Guy Hamilton. My guess is, uh, once again, once I click on his name, I'm sure he's probably done mostly strictly just Bond films. Uh, let's take a look at his catalog here as far as what else he is known for. Live and Let Die, the uh, follow-up uh, James Bond film. Goldfinger and the Man with the Golden Gun. Yep. Yep. Like I said, they all get kind of kind of direct casted, I guess, if you will. They, they kind of tend to stick with what they know. <laughs> <clears throat> written by Richard Maybaum, Tom Mankiewicz, and Ian Fleming, of course, uh, starring Sean Connery, Jill St. John, and Charles Gray. Let's see what else uh, these particular individuals, let me see if I recognize anybody else. Lena Wood, she's very uh, very famous. Uh, she plays Plenty O'Toole. Yeah, great name, right? Bruce Cabot, uh, Desmond Leland, once again, as Q. Bernard Lee as M, uh, rightly so, because they've been around since the inception of uh, such uh, Bond films. Uh, the taglines here, diamonds are forever, forever, forever. Uh, dumb, yeah, a little, little dumb, but whatever. All right, moving on. Let me see what we got here trivially. During a late 1990s airing of the film on TBS Dinner and a Movie, Bruce Glover recalled, <coughs> excuse me, that while filming their scenes together, he and Putter Smith had Sir Sean Connery convinced that the two were actually openly homosexual. That's pretty funny. Uh, Glover added that a few years later, while on airline flight, he was flirting with a female flight attendant and suddenly heard his Scottish accent and voice saying, you son of a bitch. Glover turned around and saw that man was Sean Connery. That's pretty funny. <clears throat> hey, I'm dying over here. Uh, 
Got a slight cold because of sure, sure, because of super sure judicial system. Sorry, Dana Carvey. Anyway, uh, because of Sir Sean Connery's high fee, the special effects budget was significantly scaled back. Interesting. Connery was reportedly paid $1.2 million to return as James Bond, a figure unheard of within that particular time. Uh, I, I can believe that because it was 1971, if I'm not mistaken, so therefore it was probably filmed in 1970. I will get to that momentarily here on Wiki. Sir Sean Connery made most of the film, uh, excuse me, most of his time on location in Las Vegas. I didn't get any sleep at all. We shot every night. I caught all the shows, played golf all day. On the weekend, I collapsed. Boy, did I collapse like a skull with legs. Uh, he also played the slot machines and once delayed a scene because he was collecting his winnings. That's pretty funny. I gotta stop saying that. I feel like I say pretty funny way fucking damn too much. During Bond's briefing with M and Sir Donald Munger at the beginning, Munger refers to Bond having just been on holiday and later M quips how the service had managed well during Bond's absence. These were inside jokes referring to Sean Connery's absence on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Interesting. Okay. Which, yeah, that's true, because that was the 1969 film two years prior, and he wasn't in that film. That makes perfect sense. Mashed potatoes, uh, lastly, as far as trivia, were used to replicate the consistency of the brown substance mud bath featured in the opening teaser. Wow. Okay. What the producers failed to take into account was after 24 hours and under all the hot lights, mashed potatoes emit an almost unbearable smell. I don't think I knew that, and they clearly didn't either, so... All right, back to uh, the rest of what IMDb has to convey to me about this particular film. Um, what am I looking here? December 17th, 1971, released, country of origin in the UK, languages spoken English and German, also known as Ian Fleming's Diamonds Are Forever. So this is one of his actual installments versus something that was just out of the blue and happens to be relatively similar, right? Budget, $7.2 and grossed $43.8 million. So I'd say it was a success. Let's see what Wiki has to say about it. Based on 1956's Ian Fleming's novel of the same name, it is the second of four James Bond films directed by Guy Hamilton. After George Lazenby left the series, producers Harry Saltzman and Arbert L. L. Excuse me, Arbert R. Broccoli tested other actors, but Studio UA, United Artists, wanted Connery back, paying then a record $1.25 million salary for him to return. As they stated before, uh, unheard of at that particular time. Uh, let me get into a little bit more here. Production-wise, producers originally intended to have Diamonds Are Forever recreate commercially successful aspects of Goldfinger, the better Bond uh, installment, including hiring its director, Guy Hamilton. Uh, Peter R. Hunt, who had directed On Her Majesty's Secret Service two years prior, uh, worked in all previous Bond films as editor. He was invited before Hamilton due to the involvement with another project but could only work on the film if the production date was postponed. Diamonds Are Forever was the first Bond production to be primarily based in the U.S. rather than the U.K., hence the Las Vegas reference. Makes perfect, perfect sense. <coughs> Excuse me. Energy drink, guys. Sorry. Speaking of which, let me take a sip. All right. Filming began April 5th, 1971, with South African scenes actually shot in the desert near Las Vegas. Makes perfect sense because there is a pretty good amount of desert outside of Las Vegas. The scene was written to include Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd killing Dr. Tynan by forcing a scorpion down his mouth. It was rewritten in order to be approved by British censors. I get it. It's the 60s. Or excuse me, uh, 70s. Well, even then, yeah, I mean, they're, they're a little more strict compared to, like, I feel like what we had, especially at that time. Uh, Universal Studios <clears throat> and eight hotels of Las Vegas were uh, actually shot and primarily included within the film. The cinematic oil rig sequence was shot off the shore of Oceanside, California. Interesting. I don't think I knew that. Other filming locations included Cap d'Antibes in France for opening scenes, Amsterdam, and the Frankfurt Airport uh, in uh, Germany. That's cool. 
The home of Kirk Douglas was actually used for the scene in Tiffany's house, while the Elrod house in Palm Springs, designed by John Lautner, became Willard White's house. Interesting. That's really cool. Uh, since the car chase in Las Vegas would have many car crashes, the filmmakers had a product placement arrangement with Ford to use their vehicles. Ford only demanded that Sean Connery had to drive the 1971 Mustang Mach 1, which serves as Tiffany Case's car. Okay. <clears throat> Hamilton, the writer, had, uh, excuse me, Guy Hamilton, uh, had the idea of making a fight scene inside of a lift, which was choreographed and performed by Sean Connery and stuntman Joe Robinson. I'm, I'm sensing a trend here. It's so cool that Sean Connery did a lot of his uh, stunts. It's really cool. Uh, the stunt team had only one automobile left, so they called Bill Hickman, who drove for hours to the location, jumped into the Mustang, and did the stunt in one take. That's really cool. A continuity mistake during the same car chase made it into the final film cut. When Bond drives the Mustang on two wheels through a narrow alley, the car enters the alley on its right side tires and exits on its left side. Okay, I will uh, pay attention to that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, because I definitely, I started it, but uh, yeah, okay. All right, That's hilarious. Original soundtrack was uh, composed by John Barry, the sixth time composing for uh, any of the Bond films consecutively. That's pretty cool. Uh, the second James Bond theme to be performed by Shirley Bassey after Goldfinger in 1964. She returns for this film in 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. Release and reception. What do we got here? Diamonds Are Forever was number one in the U.S. for seven consecutive weeks and went on to gross $116 million worldwide. The U.K. Diamonds Are Forever was the second highest grossing film of 1971, being beaten by On the Buses. Never heard of that one. That's what I was looking for. Here we go. Roger Ebert, Chicago Sun-Times. In a positive review, the irrelevance of the plot in the moments of silliness, such as Bond finding himself driving a moon buggy with antenna revolving and robot arms flapping. He praised the Las Vegas car chase scene, <clears throat> particularly the segment when Bond drives a Ford Mustang on two wheels, of course. He probably didn't catch the continuity, though, like others did. So, okay. All right. Uh, retrospective reviews. Oh, here we go. Review aggregator. Yeah, because they fucking aggravate me, that's for sure. Uh, I can't speak English. Rotten Tomatoes holds an approval rating of 66% based on 47 reviews with an average rating of 6.3 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, Diamonds are forever. Largely derivative affair, but it's still pretty entertaining nonetheless. Thanks to great sense, witty dialogue, and a presence of Sean Connery. Yeah, the fact that he's in a lot of these old films, he just adds that charm. That's just wonderful. So there you have it. Uh, I talked Goldfinger, Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, uh, about four um, different subjective, uh, I guess, you know, top or worst or best of overrated whatever lists that I decided to make my own list. Sega CD and Turbo CD. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, sorry, I mean, things are probably going to be slowing down here for me uh, as far as uh, infrequency of uh, podcasts. It's probably going to be maybe one a week now if I get the opportunity. I just, I have things going on. I mean, you know, in the event of uh, reality kicks in, I mean, I'll be honest, guys, you know, I mean, I don't really like to convey my uh, life on the air, but it is what it is. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been going through divorce for a good while now. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, she and I are cordial, the feelings mutual. It is what it is. I don't really need to get into uh, in depth about that. But, you know, it comes a time where there's life and responsibilities and priorities, and I would like to make this a priority, but sometimes it can't be because I have other things that I have to do between work and taking care of things at the house, just being honest. So it is what it is. By all means, you can reach out to me via my emails, shazz.boxx.88 at hotmail.com or letz.surf.88 at gmail.com or even my telegram, you know, via... Tyler Glizzy, if you want to talk to me, by all means, I'm, I'm there. I'm always down for questions, comments, concerns for anybody who wants to be on the show, suggestions, so forth, all of that. It's been a lot of fun doing this, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. 
enjoy the rest of your day, guys. You know, good night. Good day. Good. Just have a good one. How about that? Sean Connery out.